We have the opportunity this morning to continue a series that Pastor Rob began a number of weeks ago entitled The Reality of God. And the reality of God is a sermon series based on the book of 1 John. And so uh, today we find ourselves on part 5, which means we are in chapter 3 of 1 John. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. 1 John chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are the God who has spoken. Father, you have not left us alone in this world to wonder or to wander around aimlessly trying to figure out the meaning of life, trying to figure out where we're going, trying to figure out what's expected of us. But God, you have spoken mightily. You have spoken in the created order, which screams of your existence, your undeniable presence. And God, you have spoken to us here in your word, in the scriptures, which we can hold in our hands, which we can carry around with us, which we can read at our leisure. And God, you have spoken most fully in that word who became flesh, your son, Christ Jesus. And so God, we pray that we would be attentive to your word, that we'd be attentive to your revelation. And that, God, as we consider this written word this morning, that we would indeed see that word made flesh, Christ Jesus, high and lifted up. And that, God, you would not just make us hearers of your word, but also doers. So bless us, we pray, in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Here in 1 John chapter 3, we see a couple things. In the first three verses, we see the love of the Father. And then in verses 4 through 10, we see a love that defines his children's lives. The love of the Father, and then that love that defines his children's lives. You see, it's been well documented that the three little words, I love you, can be life-changing. There's a great Seinfeld episode where the always conflicted George Costanza meets a woman 
And a woman who is actually interested and respectful of his marvelous and neurotic insights into the nuances of different toilet paper brands that he can't help but fall in love with her. And so in the middle of the episode, he's with her, and he tells her those three little words, I love you. The problem is that he gets no response. And he learns later in the episode that she's actually hearing impaired in her one ear, and that was the ear he had spoken into. And so later in the episode, he again, on the other side of her now, once again says, I love you. And she says, George, I heard you the first time. <laughs> you see, those three little words can be life-changing when uttered, when heard. Those three little words, I love you, can be life-changing as well when they go unsaid or unreciprocated. At the same time, it's been well documented that the word love, especially in our modern English-speaking context, sometimes loses its meaning. Other languages, including those here in the New Testament, have multiple words for love. And each word possesses its own nuance, its own inflection, its own point of emphasis, so that you know exactly what's being spoken of. <clears throat> but in English, we only have that one word. That one word, love. And so we love our spouses. We love our children. We love God. But we also love chicken wings. And we love the Miami Hurricanes, at least some of us. All right. And we love when a plan comes together. And so when we proclaim to a watching world that God loves them or that God is love, what exactly do we mean? What kind of love does God have for them? What is the big deal about this love? You see, John answers this question for us in the first verse of chapter 3. He tells us that the kind of love that we have from God is that from a perfect father for his children. But the love of this perfect father isn't a love for perfect children. God would not have been that dad driving a minivan around town that says, my child was on the honor roll at fill-in-the-blank middle school. Why? Because we know the children of God, namely us, aren't perfect aren't even obedient. We rebelled. We continued to rebel. We go our own way. The children of God wanted his throne. The children of God, as we see recorded in scripture, broke his every law, chased other gods, and forsook him. And when God the Father sent his son to make peace and to restore the relation, what did the children of God do? We tortured him. And we nailed him bloody, to a cross. You see, the perfect love of the perfect father is for his children who are anything but perfect. But we know also in scripture that the love of the father was so strong and so gracious and so scandalous that the greatest act of his children's rebellion, namely killing the son, was the very means the father used to break the curse of sin, to make atonement. And the resurrection of the Son was the victory over human sin and death. 
So that now, all who trust in that life and death, we're told in Scripture, are no longer rebellious children of wrath, but forgiven and restored children of God. And so for John, who wrote this letter, John the Apostle, this was a love, the love of the Father. It was a love that he could never get over. He never moved past it. It was a love so deep and profound and gracious that it never lost its shock value. It never ceased to amaze him. Me? A sinner? A sinner? Now a child of God? And we know that John was so fixated on this love because in the Gospel of John, which he also writes, he refers to himself in sort of this cryptic phrase as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there's speculation of whether or not that was maybe a prideful title by John, sort of indicating his position in Christ's inner circle. But I think it's actually the opposite. It's the opposite. The disciple whom Jesus loved was an indication of the apostles' profound humility. Profound humility and amazement that he won't even refer to himself by name. He is most fundamentally the one whom Christ, the second person of the Godhead, would love. And would love without exception. With a love so glorious And you see, we're told in the scriptures that that is us as well. Your most fundamental identity is not your birth name. Your most fundamental identity isn't your social security number or your bank account or your married name or your career or your neighborhood. Your most fundamental identity isn't even the sin or the failure that might currently characterize your life. We're told in Scripture that our most fundamental identity is one whom Jesus loved and loved to the uttermost. What is the great theology taught in that children's song? Jesus, love me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones, children, as John calls us here, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Does that still amaze you this morning? Because it amazed John. He never moves past it. Does the love of God that calls you a child still amaze you? Or has that good news become old news? I pray that it doesn't. And so in verses 1 through 3, we read of this amazing love of the Father, which grants us this new identity as children, children of God. And it's a love that meets us exactly where we are, and it defines us forevermore as his family. But that love which defines us and meets us and calls us as children doesn't just give us a new identity. We're told in verses 4 and following that that love also transforms us. And it gives us, along with a new identity, it gives us new inclinations. New inclinations. And that love, which we see in these verses that defines us, 
it will produce two main characteristics. Two main characteristics. The first is that we will have changed desires and changed appetites. Changed desires and changed appetites. Look at verse 7. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, John makes it clear that the loves and the desires and the habits which characterize our lives before meeting Christ should be loves and desires and habits that increasingly lose their appeal and lose their luster when put next to the love of God that has now been extended to us. Before meeting Christ, many of us were experts in works and desires of the flesh. But after meeting Christ, the Bible tells us, we've been given a new nature. And yes, that old nature will still war against our newfound nature, but that old nature no longer has a foothold. And that new nature then begins to grow as we're conformed more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. And so John has to tell us, he has to remind us, because our hearts are prone to deception, that the true child of God, the true child of God will not be someone who is making a habitual practice of sin. It is not someone who is making a willful practice of sin. But you see, it's that word practice that's so important. You must notice that John here isn't teaching sinless perfectionism. He's not teaching that. We wouldn't come each Sunday and confess our sins once again, if that were the case. And it would fly in the face of the very passage that Pastor Sam quoted in the assurance of pardon. What he quoted was from earlier in this same letter, in chapter 1, where John, the author, tells us he's writing so that we don't sin. He's hoping and encouraging us to not sin. But if we sin, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the sinless one, Christ Jesus, who is continually pleading his merits on our behalf. And so John here is not teaching sinless perfectionism, that would be to contradict his earlier words. And that would be to swing the pendulum of interpretation, if you will, too far. But, we're all prone to this, myself included, we can swing that pendulum of interpretation too far the other way as well. And we can conclude that how we live doesn't matter. We can conclude that we have this license to sin. And yet what John does say here is that one who claims to be a child of God and yet continues to make a willful practice of sin is deceiving themselves and perhaps has not really grasped the transforming love of God. And that person ignores John's words and his warning at their own peril. 
And again, we know this. We know he's so serious about this because if you look in verse 8 again, what does he say Christ came to do? Christ came not just to restore sinners, not just to restore creation and turn back the curse, though he did do those things, but Christ came belligerently. He came to wage a defiant war against sin and Satan. That he is, to use his own words, in that little parable he tells, Jesus is the strong man who comes and binds Satan in his own house, in this world, and then plunders his house and takes back what's rightfully his by destroying the works of Satan, by destroying his kingdom. You see, we're all familiar with that quote from Abraham Kuyper. We've quoted it here a number of times. That when Christ looks out upon the universe, there's not a single square inch where he doesn't claim as Lord, mine. Every square inch of existence is his. But you see, Satan refused to believe that. And he set up his own kingdom. But at the advent of Christ Jesus, at the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, God came to smash that kingdom. And he came to rightfully set up once and for all his original kingdom. And so this means then that those who are found in Christ Jesus, as those who have been told we will one day be like him fully, if you go back and look at verse 2 that we just read, that we will one day be like him fully. We will one day see him as he really is at the end of time. For those of us, as his children, in the here and now, we are called to be on a similar sin-defeating, kingdom-building mission. But that every square inch principle, every square inch that the Lord claims is his, it has to start with our own lives. It has to. It has to start with our own lives our own habits, our own desires. Every square inch of our existence is God's. But then secondly, every square inch includes society and the world. That's why then we are called to be people who are on mission against practices and institutions that God detests. And likewise, we're to be people who advocate and champion that which God loves. And so this warning is so important to us. And I know it's a hard text to hear some of the things that John is saying this morning. But this warning is so crucial because he's telling us the one who claims to be a child of God and yet takes an apathetic or lackadaisical or worse, a permissive approach to sin in their own lives and in the world. John warns may not have experienced the transforming love of God. Because you see, the love of God comes and it finds exactly where we're at. But it loves us enough to not leave us there. And it transforms us and it does things in our lives for the watching world and our own hearts to see. And so the question then is what square inch of your personal life, what square inch of my personal life are we holding back from the Lordship and the dominion of God. 
Because John tells us a child of God should see an increasing love for righteousness and that which pleases God. And so again, the love of God, the Father, gives us that new identity. But then in having that new identity, it transforms us and gives us new inclinations. And that first inclination that we saw was that our appetites and our desires are changing. But finally, the second characteristic, the second inclination we see later in that section is that we should have an increasing love for neighbor. An increasing love for our neighbor. The phrase he uses is for our brother. You see, later on in chapter 4, John will repeat this admonishment with a very clear paradigm. He'll ask rhetorically, how can you love God, whom you can't see, but hate your brother, whom you can? Or to borrow imagery from the Gospels itself and the teaching of Christ himself, it's that image of the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. That servant who was forgiven an enormous debt, an incalculable debt. But then, once he's given his freedom, he encounters a peer who owes him a meager amount. And he refuses to extend love and grace, but tries to exact a pound of flesh. Or, to use another image, it's the woman who comes to Christ when he is at a Pharisee's house. And she anoints his feet with ointment. And she washes his feet with her tears and her own hair. And what does Christ say? She loved much because she was forgiven much. That's us. That's every person sitting here this morning. And you see, that's the ticket. When we understand the enormous debt of sin that we've been forgiven, and when we truly understand the depths of our wickedness and our depravity, and when we truly understand that in spite of those things, God's love came to us anyway, you see that has a way of working deep within us and transforming us so that we cannot help but extend that same love and grace to our brother, to our sister, to our neighbor, even that neighbor with the unkept lawn and the speakers are too loud, to that annoying coworker we have. You see, to every single person made in the very image of God, to every single person whose identity is also fundamentally as a beloved child of God whom Christ himself loved to the uttermost. And you see, this is the other side of the coin then for John as it pertains to the Christian. As we are kingdom-building, sin-defeating people, we should do those things with a love that also characterizes God himself. It's a love that wages war against sin wherever it's found, but it's a love that recognizes God came to us while we were yet sinners. And so we go out against sin, against the things of the devil, but with a similarly merciful and sacrificial and selfless love of God. And we recognize that if his love could change us, then it has the power to change others as well. So the question is, who is that brother or sister who is a neighbor or coworker 
that God is calling you this morning to love with an otherworldly, Christ-like love. You see, the love of God the Father, it's a love that gives us a new identity. Sons and daughters of God Most High. And it's a love that breaks the shackles to sin and self that we naturally possess. And it's a life, or it's a love rather, that liberates us to a life of faith and love forevermore.